With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Today on Radical Personal Finance, we have a live Q&A call. Well, it's not live for you, obviously. You're listening to the recording of it. But it was recorded live, and I think we got some interesting topics. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and I'm your host. Thank you for being with me. Today, we have Q&A, and this was a live Q&A call, conference call that was recorded with the patrons of the show. Some interesting topics came out. I thought the call flowed well, and I decided to share it with you. So instead of my handling your pre-recorded or pre-asked questions, today, you get to hear me handle them live. Been doing these uh, conference calls with the listeners of the patrons of the show, patrons at the ten dollar and up level, and they've been really fun. Uh, which, by the way, this was the deal of the century for for some of you who are patrons. Uh, on a couple of the calls, we've only had a few people there, and so I've had lots of time to be able to, to answer individual questions. Uh, so this has been super super fun. There are a couple left. Uh, uh, doing two more, and then I'll be back to a more regular schedule of what I've. Uh, put out on the Patreon page uh, of a monthly schedule instead of a weekly schedule. But here during the month of October and November, I've done one every week with patrons of the show at 10 bucks and up. And there's been some really cool topics, really cool discussions. And I decided today to release this audio to you uh, for your show today. So we're going to get straight to that super quick. I'm going to cover sponsors today in record time. Two sponsors today. Uh, first sponsor is Jay Fleischman. Jay has been on the show recently. He was on episode number 214 and then also recently 258 as we launched his sponsorship sponsorship on the show. If you're not familiar with Jay, if this is your first time, uh, Jay is awesome. He is a student loan attorney, a bankruptcy attorney, and a consultant and host of the Student Loan Show. The reason he's on the show as a sponsor if you have student loans, he can help. So in short, if you haven't listened to those two episodes, go back and listen to those two episodes of the show, 258 and 214, and check out his information. You will learn more about student loans in those shows than you've ever learned in your life, I promise. Uh, and then if you have student loans, go to studentloanshow.com slash radical and ask Jay for a consultation. You'll be glad you did. He may be able to help you find some ways to save some serious money on your student loans. If you are in any kind of difficult, challenging situation, make sure you talk to Jay and sign up for Jay's podcast. That's why you should call Jay. Next, Patrick Snow, the publishing doctor. Patrick has also been on the show with episode 252. He is a publishing coach. And in short, if you have ever thought about writing a book, you should go to thepublishingdoctor.com, take a look at some of his services that he has to offer, and consider reaching out to him for a consultation. He can work with you in a consultative capacity to help guide you through the process of publishing your book. Patrick is awesome. He's been hugely helpful to me, uh, and I think that some of his methodology, some of his resources can be a huge help to you. So that's sponsored today, number two, Patrick Snow. He'll offer you a complimentary consultation if you would like 
like to speak with him about publishing and ask him questions about your potential book project. Uh, his cell phone number is linked in the show notes today, or just go ahead and remember it now. Text him at 206-310-1200, and you can get in touch with him directly. Those are our two sponsors. Finally, uh, patrons of the show, thank you. All of you who are on all of the uh, callers that you hear on today's show are patrons, and there are many more of you. If you would like to support the show directly, please consider becoming a patron. Go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. You'll find all of the benefits there, including benefits of being on calls like this. With that, here we go. Let's kick it off with Bob. Any um, questions, anything you're thinking about, Bob, that I can help you with? Anything I can um, uh, be of service to you on today's call? Yes, yes. Um, knowing knowing the the business that I work in, uh, I would like to to hear your opinion on disability insurance for self employed. Hard to get, uh, hard, but valuable hard to, to get. have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. In, in have you have you work around? Uh, I'm a licensed yeah. producer as well, and in knowing knowing how hard it is to get in the hoops you have to jump through i wanted your input i got a couple of a couple of workarounds uh and i'll give you some kind of uh, i'll give you some ways to approach it first though have you ever tried to get it have you ever applied for a policy before yes yes and, and, what, and i'm not happened? qualified uh, rejection based on and the only thing based on where you work no 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 based based on on um medical Okay. All right. So a medical so, qualification, medical disqualification, that's going to be, that's the hardest to overcome. Uh, because what that means is if you're in a, if you're in a situation where you're dealing with a medical condition, then that's not related to whether you're self-employed or whether you are employed as a, you know, as a straight W-2 employee, depending on the medical condition, you want to shop around and you want to look to see uh, you want to shop around and you want to look to see if you can get a better offer from another carrier. How many carriers did you apply with? Two. Okay. And both of them turned you down? Yes. Who were the carriers? I don't remember. It's been six years and at the time I wasn't licensed and I had an agent that was doing it for me. I have confidence okay. in that agent, but I didn't, I, I let him shop it because he was independent. Okay. It's worth shopping yourself. What I would do, you are licensed now with a health and life insurance license, right? All four terms, yeah. Okay. Yes. So go to the broker that I used to use was a broker called DI Broker. So go to dibroker.com and call their specialist and just tell them the details of the medical condition. Tell them what you're facing and talk to their underwriters on the phone. And the way those brokers usually will work is they will have uh, a phone answer, uh, so basically somebody basic, and then they'll have a back office underwriter. Just go ahead and ask them maybe, just tell them what you're doing and ask them, do you need to talk to one of their internal underwriters or just give them all the details. And what they'll do is they will look at the case. What you can do if you want to find out without making a formal application is submit what's called an informal inquiry and submit to them an informal inquiry. And depending on the carrier and depending on the case, what that means is you'll give them your name, your all your contact information. You'll give them your social security numbers and your medical records. And then what they'll do is they'll pull your medical records. They will verify and look at the details of those medical records. 
and then they will uh, uh, they'll shop it around. They'll talk to some underwriters, some of the carriers, without doing a full blown application. So that can help you to get an answer on the medical uh, question, independent of the income question. Uh, so that's where I would start is with a with a disability insurance broker like BI Broker and submitting an informal inquiry. Assume for a moment you get good news back on the medical situation and they say, hey, you know, we're, we'd be willing to consider it. Uh, and DI broker, I mean, they, they'll they'll shop it with everyone. So depending on the case and depending on whatever you might end up with, you know, standard insurance company or you can have placed cases through them with Lloyds of London. Uh, and so sometimes depending on the medical condition, they can they can achieve a specialized scenario. Uh, so it's all very subjective. Uh, as far as the financial underwriting, the things that hurt you on uh, being self-employed are usually two things. Number one is generally your income is you're going to show a lower income than you actually be- enjoy because you're going to be writing off so many expenses. And so mm-hmm. that's good for your tax bill. But at the end of the year, it's bad for your disability insurance applications and it's bad for your mortgage application. So right. you got to take that into account. And so most self-employed people are dissatisfied with the offers that they get. So to make up round numbers, let's say that you uh, are showing $5,000 a month of income, but by the time you take out all the deductions, you're actually benefiting at $7,000 a month of, of expenses, part of which are flowing through your, your account. Well, remember, they're not going to, disability insurance broker isn't going to offer you uh, anywhere close to 100% of your income. They're going to offer you, you know, maybe $3,000 a month. So this really annoys most business owners that they look down and say, well, what am I going to do with $3,000 a month? Uh, what I would suggest to you is consider um, consider uh, that $3,000 a month, if you did get disabled, is better than nothing. So it's not seven, but it's better than zero. So it's worth doing. How you can supplement that is you can consider supplementing that with a disability overhead expense insurance policy. Are you familiar with DOE coverage? No. So the way it works for, for business owners um, is that you can you can get a personal disability insurance policy, and that personal disability insurance policy can cover your income. But as a business owner, you can also get a disability overhead expense policy, and that overhead expense policy can cover the expenses from your business. So with the expenses from your business, you can use that to uh, to to run some of those and, and cover some of those those uh, fees and costs that you have associated with your business. That would be your rent, your phone lines, your web servers, your web hosting, that kind of thing. Uh, depending on employees, uh, depending on the makeup of your of your business, employees can be problematic or they can work. But you can cover some of your overhead. So let's say that you have two thousand dollars a month of monthly business overhead you can get a disability policy that might cover $1,500 a month of monthly business overhead. Now, with that $1,500 a month of monthly business overhead, that'll, that, that, if, they'll, if you get disabled, they'll cover that for a certain period of time. Disability overhead expense policies are generally short-term policies, usually about a year or two years at the maximum, uh, whereas an individual disability in- income policy can cover you out through maybe you know, 60, 65, 70, depending on the policy. Uh, so it's going to be a short-term deal that helps to cover your overhead. So look at your cash situation and uh, look at your cash situation and see would that be helpful to you. Most the the purpose behind disability po- uh, overhead expense policies 
is to cover you if you got disabled to keep the business going in absence of some of the revenue so that you can either, you know, by the end of 24 months with most entrepreneurs, if you're disabled, at the end of 24 months, you're going to know I'm going to be back to work or I'm going to sell this thing. And so it helps you to keep the business going uh, in the interim to, uh, and keep your bills paid so you can either keep the business as a going concern so you can sell it at the end of two years uh, or helps it to still be healthy enough for you to come back into. So that can be a way for you to get a little bit of additional coverage on top of a personal policy. And sometimes it's worth, it's worth your checking into based upon your medical condition. It's worth your checking into uh, as a component of your disability plan because it might have different medical underwriting. Because they're shorter-term policies, there might there are some medical conditions that uh, are unlikely to cause problems in the short term, but likely to cause problems in the longer term. And disability insurance, disability overhead expense policies are shorter term policies, so that you might be able to find some wiggle room there on the medical underwriting. The third idea is doesn't work as well now as it used to, but mm-hmm. one thing you might consider doing is looking for what's called a long term care insurance cash indemnity policy. I don't know if these are available in your state. You need to ask, find a friend or call somebody who does long-term care insurance and ask them or ask a broker if they know of any company that writes long-term care insurance cash indemnity policies. So let me explain the concept to you. It's hard, it's hard to find these anymore, but most, um, uh, they're not indemnity policies. They're, uh, yeah, they are. They are indemnity policies. Okay, I'm getting my lingo confused. Uh, most long-term care insurance policies are reimbursement contracts. So let's say mm-hmm. that you have a long-term care insurance contract that covers you at 5000 bucks a month. And in order to get benefits from that, you need to submit at the end of the month, you need to submit receipts for the cost of your care. So let's say you have $4,000 of care, then you can submit receipts for that $4,000 and they'll reimburse you for up to the amount of the cost of your care. But there is another type of policy that's called a cash indemnity policy, where they will, if your policy is for $5,000, as long as you meet the circumstances of the contract where you would qualify as needing care, they'll pay you the straight cash fee. And so it'll be, uh, you know, again, 5000 bucks. What that can be useful for is it can be useful for, uh, 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 for somebody who it needs to cover living expenses in addition to long-term care policies, long-term care expenses. Now, the qualifications to qualify as, as needing, as getting benefits under a long-term care contract are different than under a disability contract, but it is possible that a, a, a really significant disability would indeed uh, qualify you as, as needing care from the long-term care insurance contract. And so the cool thing about it, if you can find one of those policies available in your state, uh, the cool thing about it is that uh, it'll give you a potential benefit there that can come in as cash. And those are those are medically underwritten differently than disability insurances. And also, they don't have the stringent financial underwriting. So I only ever placed one of these, but I had a client of mine who was a rancher. And he made a lot of money, but due to the nature of his business structure, his income, his paper income, his net profit at the end of the year was always extremely low. And so he couldn't qualify for a disability insurance policy that was worth anything to him based upon the amount of income he could prove on paper. But the long-term care insurance contract, we were able to get some contracts in force where it would cover him as a cash indemnity um, contract 
for five or six thousand bucks a month if he ever needed care. And so that provided a little cushion for him where if something happened and he met the minimum requirements of the policy to pay him out benefits, needing help with at least two of the six activities of daily living, then he would get just simply a straight cash uh, compensation, which he could use for anything that he wanted to, not just for the care expenses. So those would be my three big ideas for you. See if any of them pan out for you. Okay. A follow-up uh, mm-hmm. on that. Is, is the last one you talked about, is that kind of like an AFLAC type plan? And then the other uh, for business owners, is that through my bot policy? Uh, business owner policy? No, your business owner policy covers you for, that's uh, written with a property insurance company, and that covers you for the things that are associated with the business uh, liability uh, on premises, things totally. like that. This is this is totally separate. So the disability overhead okay. expense contract will will be written. It's from a health insurance company or a life insurance excuse me, a life insurance company, uh, and you'll get that also through the same broker that you get a personal disability insurance contract through. Uh, so again, check okay. with the I broker, and they should help you out with that since you're licensed. You can talk to them directly. And right. uh, on the long-term uh, uh, care policy, no, that is not uh, that is not an AFLAC policy, uh, but you should check the terms of the AFLAC um, policies to see if they are, if they have anything that's going to, that's going to interest you. Uh, but the, the, but no, the long-term care cash indemnity policy is not written by Aflac. It's going to be written by another company. The company that used to offer them here in Florida was a company called Med America. Uh, the challenge is this was this is the most difficult area in the long-term care insurance marketplace because the what what happened was these policies used to be popular, but the companies that were offering them are not as financially sound as they once were. And so if you do buy that type of contract, you need to go into it with your eyes wide open and you need to care, keep a careful eye on the, uh, on the actual uh, carrier to make sure that they continue to be financially sound. And you need to be prepared to bail on the contract if, you, if, if the company starts to get into trouble. Uh, so it's the, it's the riskier side of these companies, the companies that offer that, that type of contract. All right, perfect. Thanks, Josh. You're welcome. On on it uh, as a business owner, there are also a lot of things you can do to minimize your risk due to the structure of your company. So with with owning a business, to plan for disability, remember that some things insurance will solve some of the problems. But unlike an employee, you have more leeway. So an employee who's just a straight W two employee, if they get disabled and they can't work, they're screwed because that income is the only thing they have that, that's covering themselves. Well, as a business owner, depending on the nature of your business, you can go ahead and put in more systems. You can hire more people. You can set things up and plan in the business so that if you did get disabled, everything wouldn't fall apart. So keep an eye on both sides of the planning. Insurance is less relevant for business owners than is good planning. Uh, So I think it has a place and it's valuable, but also recognize that even if you can't get it, there's a lot you can do to set yourself up. Uh, to protect yourself even without insurance. Agreed. Agreed. Joshua, thank you for the answer. Detailed. That's what I need. <laughs> Good stuff, Bob. All right. Let's see. Who has a call next? Let me go. I've got a few more callers that have joined. Uh, let's go to Indiana. Uh, Nate, uh, anything I can answer for you today? Uh, yeah, I do have a question. Um, my dad has a cleaning company up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, northern Indiana. 
and he mm-hmm. has a um, he has a bunch of low low wage part time workers. Like he has like twenty um, people that work for him, and probably three quarters of them are doing whatever they can to pretty much like maximize their welfare. And um, he was explaining it to me. There's something like if they earn over fifteen between like fifteen thousand and thirty thousand, they're basically not making any more money. They have they don't get married and they have like a couple kids and they're doing all this stuff to maximize their tax credits. And, um, I don't really fully understand it, but I was just wondering if you could say something about that. And, and they seem to think it's, it's just going to keep getting easier for them. But I tried to explain to my dad, you know, this whole welfare state thing isn't sustainable and, uh, they're probably putting <laughs> themselves at major risk. So I just wondered what you thought about that. <laughs> Well, I applaud them for making use of the system. Uh, that's one of those areas I struggle to know. Me personally, I struggle to know how to talk about the ethics of 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 that situation. The conservative, uh, you know, hardcore conservative libertarian in me wants to get up on my soapbox and jump up and down and rail at people about. You should, you know, you're you're ruining the system. You're destroying everything. You know, how can you do this? What about the values of taking care of yourself and not being a leech off of the state? Uh, So that makes me, you know, that's my initial response. But then on the flip side, as I've watched, I've actually changed a lot my own personal opinions over the last number of years. If you look at the way that the U.S. government operates is we advertise most of the benefits to try to reach people that are in that situation. So, you know, the, the federal government runs advertisements for um, the, you know, food stamp program. There's advertisements for the WIC programs locally. There's advertisements for welfare payments. There's adverti- I mean, so they're advertising the services. Yeah, I've, I've and so that. It, it seems like they're, they're like, must be gaining more benefit. They must, they must think they're gaining more benefit than, than they are from, you know, not doing that. And I've heard Warren right. Buffett and, talk about trying to increase the earned income tax credit and all this stuff. And it just doesn't make sense. Like when you're already operating at a major deficit, how can you keep offering those programs? (laughs) Well, and this is where we get into the, the very fun and very divisive political discussion is it. And these are my opinions on the subject. If you recognize the interests uh, of the people who pull the purse strings, the interests of the people who pull the purse strings is power. And so the way that you manipulate power and the way that you manipulate people, uh, once you have control over the purse, is with money. And so you use the federal government and you use the purse strings of the federal government to create power for yourself. And you do that during your time in office. And then once you leave office, you've accrued the power for yourself. And then you go out into the private market and that's when you benefit. So if you go and just go and study and watch what happens, with the uh, watch what happens in with those who run the government and after their time of government service, then they go and slide over to the market and that's when they get their compensation for all the inside deals. And so the inside deals happen. uh, You need a voting block to get you in. And so you give away money as much as possible and that helps you to secure votes. And then you need a, uh, you need a, uh, you need the corporate interest, the large corporate interest to, Secure yourself, uh, you know, to, to to really move and fund your campaign, and so you know you can make the argument that well, it's a sense of altruism and trying to help and keep people from being poor. I haven't seen enough evidence to, to convince me of it. That's the divisive political argument. And that's why I think it's done. Now, to answer your question, 
Uh, how confident are you predicting the date at which the U.S. government is going to run out of money and not be able to do it? Are you ready to set the date on that? <laughs> no, it seems like they can just push that into the future perpetually. Exactly. So it's just, it's, I, it's, I mean, say, the money is the money is so fake. It just doesn't make any sense to me that we're even living in a money economy. Because when you look around, I'm a I was a naturalist for years, an environmental uh, yeah. ecologist. And when you look around at natural systems, like no other animals are living in a money or really even a barter economy at all. And I don't, I, don't, I mean, I feel like in a sense, like money is evil because it's uh, forced everyone into far more labor than is needed. When you look at hunter-gatherer societies, they're only working, they're putting in a few hours of real work a day and then having lots of leisure time. But in our country, you know, people are working their tails off. It's weird. <laughs> so you, you're opening probably one of my, my most in, the most interesting cans of worms that are just fun to talk about, and it's the kind of thing that over a cold drink and a good cigar you can go on for hours, uh, yeah. or, you know, all night long, on this stuff. Uh, it, it's have you studied the history of money at all yourself personally? No, not really. Um, I'm sh- I know it, it kind of started as agriculture and. Um, but I'm sure there was, you know, some hunter-gatherer tribes that would just, you know, get together every once in a while, so they would use a barter system. I'm not sure if that's really how it started. That's so. That, so, with my understanding, and I'm not an expert in this space, I'd encourage you to go find someone who is. I'm a student. I'm not an expert. But there is a popularly held misconception, and I'll, I'll just give you a few thoughts, and I'll answer your question. And this is one that uh, I don't want to take the whole call and go for an hour on the topic. Uh, but I'll, I'll give you a few thoughts. There's a popularly held misconception that money developed from out of a barter economy. And this it, it goes back all the way to, you know, I think Adam Smith was one of the writers who popularized this notion. And he went back and, and said, well, here's how money developed. We all started, you know, we were hunter-gatherer societies. And then you had a deer and somebody else said, I want some of that deer in here. I'll trade you an arrowhead for the deer and blah, blah, blah. And we developed the barter system. And then we needed some kind of, of, of currency that would be useful. And that currency would be, you know, so we came to the coin system. That's popular mythology around money. From all the research I've done, that there is no historical evidence that that was how money was developed and created. And there's substantial evidence that goes against that and, and demonstrating that that's demonstrably false. That money is normally actually and has historically been a system of credit and that it's almost always based upon a system of credit. So I don't buy necessarily all of the arguments that people say, well, we just have to have uh, a currency system that, you know, is based upon, we all need gold and silver coins and based upon the gold and silver coins, then we're going to be able to, to run things. I don't buy the, the barter concept personally. Um, now there are a bunch of other areas that these theories branch off into and so I'm also not a fan of the way that the system currently functions, but it, start doing some research on it, and you'll find that it, uh, it, money has generally come down to a system of credit. And so back to the current situation, as long as the U.S. government can maintain faith in, in the credit of the U.S. government and the credit of the dollar, then our current economic system will continue. And this is what always really troubles people is they look at it and say, uh, how on earth do I go through, how on earth is, you know, with the trillions of dollars of debt and, and the massive uh, issues all around, how has the government been able to keep the fabric of society together for this long? And I think they'll probably be able to do it much longer than people think. 
But at the end side, so back to the employees, at the end, in the short term, I don't think they have much to worry about because the political, uh, the political force is uh, on all sides is to provide people with more. You don't see any political candidates um, on either the Democratic or Republican Party arguing for cutting back on anything. You don't see anybody arguing for for pulling back on the welfare state. All of the uh, all of the political candidates, with uh, maybe the exception of uh, Rand Paul or Ted Cruz, which neither of them looks like they've got a shot at any kind of traction in the Republican Party. All of the political candidates are uh, are big government uh, progressives who are going to continue to expand the welfare state. And so once you recognize that, you can, I, I, my opinion, who knows, history could prove me wrong, but my opinion is that you're not going to see any change in, in policies. Nobody is uh, is advocating for any serious change that's going to affect your, your dad's workers. In the long run, I think ultimately that I'm convinced that in the long run, uh, there will be uh, uh, I don't know, the so-called great default that the there is no possibility that the U.S. government is able to maintain its overall uh, promises. And so those promises are multifold. Number one is you have the national debt that is on the books, and so that's about eighteen what is it, eighteen nineteen trillion dollars right now. And then you have the major debts, which are the welfare programs, Medicare. Medicaid and Social Security, and you total the unfunded liabilities up with that. And depending on what estimate you read, I go with Lawrence Kotlikoff's numbers from um, Boston University, you're up at about $200 trillion. And so there's no possible way that that debt will be repaid uh, or that those obligations will be shifted. And so what will happen is, in my opinion, and there's a prognostication, and I could be absolutely wrong, but what will happen is that ultimately the voters will, uh, over time, uh, screw everyone who's got the obligations from the government. And so all of the, the welfare programs, they'll be pulled back because they're unaffordable. The long-term payments to the, you know, to the pensioners, uh, Social Security, Medicare, Medicare benefits will be pulled back. And you can see signs of that if you, uh, to some degree, I think, if you pay attention to inside um, situation uh, to inside industry. So where I noticed this as a health insurance agent was in the long-term care space. Uh, we were talking a moment ago about long-term care insurance policies. In the past, Medicaid uh, had generous benefits for long-term care coverage for seniors. And that coverage, and so many times when I was doing selling long-term care insurance, people would say, well, Uncle Joe needed care. He had Alzheimer's and the federal government paid for him for nine years to stay in a nursing home. And he had plenty of money, and they just had that as part of his benefits. Well, that was true, but it's no longer true. And the government has pulled back on all of those benefits such that there is still long-term care coverage as a component of Medicaid, but it's nowhere near as generous as it once was, and it's much more restricted than it used to be. So or in the long run, anybody who's depending on the welfare state for their livelihood is going to get screwed. Uh, now, what's that long run? I have no idea. Is it 10 years, or is it 40 years, or is it 50 years? I don't know. So my encouragement to your dad would be have him put in place and try to just simply provide education as much as possible to fulfill, I would say, his moral obligation to his workers to educate them, give them some, uh, provide for them some resources so that those who are interested can um, liberate themselves. Because as long as you're living, as long as you are living off of the back of the state, you're a slave of the state. And so uh, 
I were him, I would try to promote, um, I would try to promote some education and some knowledge for his workers, try to make some resources available, offer to help any of them that want help. But ultimately, he's not going to change anything and, and they're not going to change until circumstances force them to change. That's my thoughts. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. And in, in a certain sense, I feel like almost all of us are slaves to the state. Just uh, <laughs> property taxes, and it's just impossible to live a live a life without government. Well, that's why I promote the stuff that I do, and why I promote why you're promoting your apartment. The last call, you know, when we talked two weeks ago on this call, um, that's why. Here's the dichotomy that I see, and again, this is kind of that that fun personal argument back and forth. In the aggregate. I don't see the, the state has never been more powerful over our, over our individual lives in the aggregate. But on the individual level, there's never been more freedom than there is now. And so, yes, on the whole, society is carefully manipulated and controlled. But you and I as individuals can, you know, come out of the cave to use Plato's allegory and can make decisions that will enhance our own personal liberty and there's never been more freedom ever that I'm aware of in the history of the world to make those kinds of decisions. And when you can compound the fact that just simply by waking up, paying attention to your own situation and living a lifestyle of freedom yourself, you can help to enjoy the freedom. And when you compound that with the ability that each individual person has to influence other people individually, but also to influence people on a public stage, there you have the greatest harbin, or the harbinger of liberty of all time. Because you can start an urban farm. You can teach other people to start an urban farm. You can, and every individual person can go on Facebook and has their podium and their soapbox to be able to, to challenge other people and to affect other people. So the way I look at it, and I am more optimistic about the future than almost anybody else is. And so as long as you prepare and plan for the death of the welfare state, uh, which I, I don't see any, any way that that could ever be avoided. I don't have a clue as to when it will happen, but I could be wrong. But as long as you plan and prepare so that you are personally okay, when the, the welfare state starts bouncing checks, then in the long term, there's going to be more liberty and freedom for all of us than, than there ever has been in the history of the world. So that's how I approach it is on the whole, yes, government will continue to grow, state will continue to control, but as individuals, uh, there's freedom. And encourage yourself with, encourage yourself with the statistics that give you, give you hope. So I focus on schooling because um, if you look at that, uh, there have never been more people um, learning and developing independent education that now than than ever before. And if you look at the trends, the mass trends, look at what has happened with the Khan Academy, look at what's happened with online education. Um, that is the most that is the brightest hope for the future is that steadily steadily little by little the school systems will systematically implode. They will they're overburdened. The teachers are going to be replaced by online teachers. And so the best teachers in the world are going to be uh, are going to be teaching the classes. Everything is going to be available for free online. 
once you break that system, and there's no reason for it, no, no need for anybody individually to break it, it's just going to happen based on the market forces, then systematically that will result in a, in a decreasing power of the state. So those are my political prognostications. Now you can sit back and we'll find out if I'm right or if I'm wrong. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Dan. Anything else on that, Nate? Uh, no, yeah. I think we're probably good on that. Cool. Let's go on. I, I mean, we could talk for hours about that. You've indulged my uh, political uh, bet, but let's see uh, who else has a um, uh, question. All right, who else would like uh, to ask a question or, ch- or, or chip in a topic for today? I've got a Maryland caller. I've got, uh, uh, let's see, who, I've got a, I got a 240 area code. Who's, who's that calling in from Maryland today? Uh, hello, my name is Daria. I'm calling from Maryland. Hi, Daria, I, I can I have, answer any questions to help you? Yes, I do have a question. I feel that for other listeners, it will be very basic, but I guess I should ask anyway. So I'm really new to financing, but I've been reading books and trying to figure out, you know, how should I start investing? What would be my portfolio in the future look like? And so on and so forth. And so now I am at the point when I know that when I save some money and I know that I want, you know, some individual stocks, some bonds, maybe treasury bills and rates, but what I don't know next, what to do next. So I assume that I need to open a brokerage account, but the thing is I don't know how to approach opening a brokerage account because I'm thinking that there are, first of all, several of them, which I don't know how to choose. I'm thinking there are fees associated that I might not be aware of. And I'm also thinking that probably they offer different investment vehicles and depending on what I want, some may have it, some may not. Maybe if you can um, give me first advice, let's say I want to open an account and start investing. How should I approach this? Great. Uh, So I can do that and I'll give you some some suggestions. before I do that, is it okay if I ask you a couple of quick questions just to get a sense yes, of please. where you are in the process? Okay. Do yes, you please. have do you have do you have uh, an employer-sponsored retirement plan like a 401k or 403b something like that available to you? Yes, and I have a match, and I use uh, it to my advantage. <laughs> I do. Okay, so you are participating. Great, and. Yes. Why are you, and so you desire to purchase individual stocks or you're trying to purchase mutual funds? Tell me about what type of investment plan you're hoping Uh to pursue. So I uh, read a book uh, which is called Investing 101 by Christy Christoph. I don't know if you know it, but it's something that I started with uh, to get myself oriented. So I I know that I should probably uh, purchase mutual funds but because I work in the biotech industry and I have a PhD in the relevant discipline, I really want to, I have certain companies in biotechnology that I would like to have in my portfolio and I wouldn't trust any broker to select them for them because I am, I know maybe too much about the industry to trust other people. So this is the reason why I want to have some individual stocks because I, I feel I understand how to handle those. But I also want to diversify and have some mutual funds because I I know very little about other industries and I know how biotech is risky and so on. Perfect. Okay. So you said exactly the words that I was looking for. And the words that I was looking for was 
I work in this industry and I have some knowledge of this area and I have expertise. So the reason that I was looking for those words is I think that the mistake that most people make is assuming that they should be investing in stocks when they should really be considering investment on a larger scale. So one of my personal opinions is I do not like that when I say the word invest, most people automatically assume I should purchase publicly traded securities. When I use the word invest, I would like people to think about all of the options that are available to them. And that can be everything from uh, making sure that your car maintenance is up to date so that you don't have an expensive uh, bill right at a moment when you can't afford it to purchasing the office building, the five-story office building that your company is in so that you can manage it and rent it out to your other, to your other friends. So if you look at investing, um, you've got to look at a couple of things. And I look at it, I think about it as a scale from uh, passive to active. And so in many ways, I think that we should reserve the stock market as one option. And we should look to see what are the returns that I could expect to achieve from the stock market uh, and use that as uh, uh, a placeholder. And then look to see, can I beat that? with something else in my life, some other inside information or some other inside knowledge that I have? And am I, do I have the time and the ability to pursue that? So I like for people to think about investing bigger than just putting money into stocks. That said, stocks are powerful. And the ability to own in small shares of other individual companies that people are running and pursuing for an entrepreneurial, uh, from an entrepreneurial perspective is really, really powerful. When it comes to investing in individual stocks, there is a lot of noise out there and a lot of marketing hype about how people can beat the stock market. Uh, there, is, there are thousands and thousands of books about here are the types of stocks you should buy. Here are the, the specific um, you know, ways that you should approach it. The majority of those books and the majority of that advice has no – there's no proof to it. They're, they're baseless you – know, baseless claims that, well, you can beat the stock market. Um, at the end of the day, if you purchase the stocks of 10 um, so-called blue chip companies, 10 big publicly traded companies, that's probably going to be pretty decent investments. They're well regulated. They're well run. The boards of directors do a good job of keeping those companies working. But to say, I'm going to have some kind of inside information, you need to really be dedicated to that scenario in order for it to be worth it. So I try to discourage people from buying individual stocks and, and then let them kind of prove to me that I'm wrong. And the way that you can prove to me that I'm wrong is to say, well, there's an industry or there's something that I'm very interested in and I have some knowledge, I have an ability to look and I'm, I want to do the, I want to do the research and I want to look to see. So biotech would be a good example of that. You're involved in the industry. You would know what the companies are. You have an interest in it. And you have an ability to look at press releases and things like that and perhaps look for, uh, perhaps look for uh, ways to uh, find the, the, the companies that are going to be more promising. So to, how to go about opening the, the accounts. Before you open any kind of account, sit down and create an investment plan. It doesn't have to be complicated. Just sit down and write down on a piece of paper what you're investing for, why you're investing, and what you're trying to accomplish. This is the missing step that most amateurs never do, is they never say, here's what I'm trying to do. And you should have a goal for what you want to do with the money. 
You should have a, a strategy and you should be able to identify, here's what I'm trying to do. So the reason this is important is if you start there, you're going to make better investing decisions. If your reason for investing was, I want to buy a new beach house uh, in three to four years, well, now you're going to know that I'm probably not going to pursue the same scenario as I want to, uh, I want to uh, potentially strike it rich and make some massive growth by investing in some small companies. So create a plan, make it simple. There's plenty of information out there, but at least start with being intentional. What am I trying to do? Next, look at all of your assets and figure out how much money can you afford to risk. And so you should look at your savings. You should look at the money that you have in your 401k plans. Uh, and you should look to see how much money can I afford to risk and only risk the money that you can afford to lose, especially in something speculative like biotech. My guess, and you may have more knowledge than I do, my guess is that in biotech, you're either going to have um, flat companies and losses or you're going to have the potential for a company to hit something big, invent some hot new drug, and have a huge, huge rate of return. So you're probably going to have a very wide-ranging investment portfolio where only a few of your companies are really going to make it big, and most of them are going to struggle. Some of them are going to go bankrupt. Some of them are going to develop some steady streams, but you're really looking for the, for the big wins. Um, that might be the case. I might be completely wrong. Make that plan. When it comes to actually buying stock, uh, your company pension plan is probably not the right way to do it. Uh, if you're going to buy mutual funds, depending on the type of mutual fund you're going to buy, uh, that's going to depend on the type of brokerage account. So if you were going to purchase uh, index funds, well, you just go to Vanguard.com, you'd open an account with Vanguard, and you'd purchase your index funds there. But if you're going to purchase other types of mutual funds, you might want to purchase them directly from the mutual fund company. You might want to purchase them through a brokerage account, through an online discount broker. Uh, you can also purchase your stocks through an online discount broker. And for you choosing them yourself, that's probably going to be all you need to do. There are a number of good ones. So there's some big names, E-Trade, I think Schwab, TD Ameritrade are some of the ones, Scott Trade are some of the ones that come to mind. Uh, I am in the process of bringing on a, uh, a sponsor on the show uh, for a company called Trade King. We're in the final negotiation of a sponsorship deal. And Trade King, I interviewed the CEO on the show. His name is Don Montanaro. Uh, I interviewed him uh, a couple of weeks ago from the FinCon Financial Bloggers Conference. And uh, they, they're down in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, and I uh, decided to bring them on as a sponsor of the show. I really like them. I like what they're doing. They're not the biggest company, but I feel very confident that that would be a good choice for you. Uh, you can open an account with them. And you can, they'll uh, wait a couple of days. And once you hear them, or maybe it might be a couple of weeks, but once you hear them come on the show as a sponsor, there'll be a special deal for listeners of the show, a special bonus if you open an account with them. And you can open an account with them. You can place your trades and you can purchase the stocks of those companies with them. So that's the specific answer for how to open a brokerage account. I don't know of any reason why you would choose anybody other than Trade King. But as with anything, you should go and do your own due diligence. But I will be bringing them on the show as a sponsor, and they can help you with a brokerage account to purchase those individual companies. Make sure that when you're doing it, you're doing it within the context of your bigger investment plan and your bigger financial plan and your financial goals. And then you'll, then you'll be able to make really good decisions. You'll be able to stick with your trading plans and hopefully be able to make a lot of money. It'd be awesome. that help a little bit? Yes, that's perfect. I, I actually, I was considering trading. I think I, I heard uh, the podcast that you that you did, 
And so, yeah. Uh, okay, so that, that's that's perfect. And then in terms of strategies, yeah, I'm I'm thinking about it, and they're actually evolving. Uh, of what I want to do, and my original idea was that I want to buy a house in cash, and I want to retire in 15 years. This was my kind of mm-hmm. overall <laughs> overall uh, first. Um, uh, thing that I was thinking on, and then I was trying to calculate what it means uh, to get to this goal. Uh, but you know, things that are evolving as I am learning more and more about the area. Right, and so that's where that's exactly the type of plan that you want to put together. And so you start with how much money would I need to pay for the house in cash? Uh, then you also look to say if I want to retire in 15 years. How much money do I think I would need in order to retire? And then you can plug that into a financial calculator. And if you know those numbers, I'd be happy to help you do some math right now on the call. But you plug those numbers into a financial calculator and you see, based upon how much money you have, how much money you can save, and your time horizon, and you ask yourself, is this a realistic goal that I can uh, that I could achieve? And, uh, and then you're going to know, do I think I could hit this with my investment plan? And that, and so depending on how fast you want to retire, that's going to drive, again, how you invest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah, I, I know rough numbers. I don't know if, um, if it's going to be too burdensome to do it right now, but I, I can do it. No, let's, let's do it real quick. It'll be fun. I got a calculator right here. So how much do you, how much money do you think that you need to retire? So I was thinking that uh, sixty or seventy thousand a year. Um, I, well, I would okay, probably minimum fifty thousand a year is what I would plan to do when I retire. Um, and then uh, if I retire in fifteen years, I would assume that I would live at least twenty mm-hmm. years after that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So let's then, do an. Ex- uh, let's mm-hmm. use that as an example. Let's let's use the four percent rule. Mm-hmm as a good guess on uh, kind of a good ballpark range and assume that you want to spend $50,000 per year and so you need a portfolio that you can withdraw $50,000 per year from. And so multiply $50,000 times 25 and that gives you $1,250,000. So that's the value of your portfolio that you need at the time of retirement. Now, uh, ballpark, and again, this is a public call, so feel free not to say but how much money do you have saved currently? And, and again, you don't have to answer if you don't want to. Um, I can. I mean, um, the thing is, then different, like uh, different things. Do I count 401k or do I not count 401k? Yes, count your 401k. Oh, okay. So 401k is probably forty, forty-five thousand, and then. Um, it's actually a mixture of raw pre-tax and post-tax, but let's say for 45, and then plus um, savings probably around 40, 50,000. And I do not have any debt, uh, neither college, no mortgage, no nothing, uh, pretty much. Congratulations. Okay, so we've got $100,000 <laughs> now. And then how much every year do you think that you can afford to contribute to your investment account? Um, every year. Okay. Um, I'm right now I'm using YNAB that you recommended to, to see how yep. much mm-hmm. I can contribute. Okay. I think I can at this moment, uh, 3000 a month, uh, which will make me 36, 
if I uh, persuade my husband to help me out, let's say forty forty thousand a year. Okay. So uh, let me show. Let me do this math for you, and let's assume that you want to retire in fifteen years. That was what you said, right? Yeah. Okay. So the way that we do this math, and this is just rough math, but to give you an idea of the type of investment plan that you need, we put in into the financial calculator, and you're gonna, and it's simple once you know how to learn how to run the financial calculator. But uh, you, you'll need to learn that on your own. Or oh, I think I did a show on it, or I need to do some videos on it. So first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna put in our future value. So we type one million two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and we put that in as our future value. We hit the FV button on our calculator. Next, we're going to put in our present value, and we're going to put in $100,000, and then depending on the calculator, usually you need to change the sign and put it in as negative, so you put in minus $100,000, our present value, and then we're going to put in our, our annual payment, and so we're going to do an annual payment here, and we're going to put $40,000 of a contribution into the account uh, as a payment, and then we're going to run this for 15 years, and we're going to solve for the necessary interest rate. And I just solved for interest, and the calculator is running here, and it's going to tell us how much interest we actually need uh, to uh, to uh, an interest rate that we need to earn on our money. Hang on one second. I forgot to uh, – I made one mistake. Just a second. $1,250,000. Hard to do it and then talk at the same time. Fifteen. Uh, then. Okay, and it's running again here. This is going to tell us what our annual percentage rate of return is that we need. Okay, so under that scenario, all we need here is a 6.2% rate of return. Uh, that's all we need to earn on our investments. And the way that you can check that is we can just uh, run the numbers again. And so what I'll do is I'll say, okay, 6.2%, we've got $100,000 uh, starting point. We're gonna do this for 15 years. We're gonna earn 6.2% annual rate of return, and we're gonna contribute $40,000 to the account uh, every year. So what does that end up with? And at the end of 15 years, we would have $1,250,000. So the reason I ran that math is to show you that if you can afford to save that much money, you only need a 6% rate of return to hit that financial goal. Well, you should be able to get a 6% rate of return just with buying an index fund uh, and not putting in any and putting your money in stocks and not worrying about investing in biotech stocks. So you have the decision to say, do I just want to buy index funds? or just want to buy real estate and make 6% and reach those goals and have a much higher certainty, or do I want to invest in biotech stocks? And so you have to look and say, how much rate of return do I think I could earn in biotech stocks and do I need to? And that's what I mean by actually running a scenario because well, the next question, do you have a guess as to what rate of return you would hope to earn if you were going to run your portfolio yourself and invest in biotech stocks? Oh, good question. Um, well, I was thinking 10% should be possible if I make sure that I spend enough time. Um, maybe more, but as you said, you, you've got to be lucky as well as knowledgeable. 
Right. So if you're in the 10% range, I wouldn't, my guess is I wouldn't think it would be worth pursuing uh, biotech stocks as your investment strategy if you only wanted or needed 10%. Um, 10%, uh, you should be able to get there with much simpler, much safer uh, investment approaches versus uh, investing in speculative biotech stocks. So if I were you, what I would do is I would create a plan where the majority of your money is going to go into um, well-chosen mutual funds. And I would do that within your 401k and things like that. And I would produce, I would put something like, I would have a goal of maybe investing $2,000 a month or $2,500 a month into more conservative investments. And then I would take maybe a little bit extra, maybe $500 or $1,000 or $1,500 a month. And I would use that money to fund my brokerage account. And so what you're doing there is you are uh, having a major portfolio that's your conservative portfolio, and then you have a small portfolio that you're investing aggressively. And the hope is that you can make 50% rate of return or you know, 30% or 80% by picking the right biotech stock, but you're not counting on that to be your whole, your whole financial plan, and you're not putting all of your money at risk in a very speculative uh, way. So that's what I would do is I would have um, kind of my core portfolio be a little bit more conservative. And then I would have the satellite portfolio. That's kind of one of the words they would use this type of approach, your core and your satellite. I'd have my satellite portfolio be much more aggressive. Now, you've got to pick the numbers, but knowing that you could save, if you, if you want to live on $50,000 a year and knowing you can save $40,000 a year, and knowing that you don't need that high of a rate of return to hit your financial independence goals, I would focus a lot of my portfolio in a conservative direction, and then I would put a little bit of the portfolio in the speculative speculative direction. That would seem like how I would approach it. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much, Joshua. Actually, you um, in my wine hub, I put by exactly five hundred. I budget five hundred of stock. Well. Which I haven't awesome. invested any, but I'm budgeting on that money, that much money because I, you know, I, I know how it goes uh, in this area. Okay, well, yeah. that's wonderful. I don't want to take any more of your time, but I have a lot to think about, and it's perfect. Good, good. Go slow and make sure that you study, 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 study. Go slow. Don't invest in something you don't understand. And go slow and don't invest any money that you can't afford to lose. And I mean, you're obviously a, a really, you're obviously very, very bright. And I think you could uh, uh, put something together very nicely for yourself. So, all right, I'll take one more question for today. Who wants to ask the final question? Hey, jo- Josh, I just want to follow up. Actually, I thought that was pretty interesting. But wasn't one major piece of the um, formula missing, like her age and how many years she was going to be retired? Yes. Uh, the I use just as a uh, sample, I use the 4% rule. And so the data and the research behind the 4% rule is assuming a 30 or 35-year year retirement. But what you find is with the right portfolio construction that it can actually be basically most of the portfolios at a 4% distribution could last into perpetuity. So if you're in that 3 to 4% range, uh, then your portfolio should be able to be structured to last uh, for a long period of retirement. Uh, what I was trying to do with asking those numbers and keeping it simple was simply trying to find out, um, does she need a 6% rate of return or does she need a 66% rate of return? So if she had told me, you know, Josh, I actually want to spend $150,000 per year 
uh, then I immediately know that my ending portfolio needs to be closer to $4 million. And so if I put uh, $4 million into the calculator, let's do this again real quick, 15 years, we're going to start it with $100,000 and we're going to make $40,000 of contributions into it. Then now if we need $4 million at the end of 15 years, we're going to give it a second to run and it's going to tell us our rate of return. It's going to be way, way different than 6%. The reason I say that is because I believe that many financial, um, uh, okay, so now we're at an 18% rate of return. So she would need an 18% rate of return every year if uh, she, if she wanted to live on whatever I said, $150,000 a year. So she needs a $4 million portfolio. I think that's still a workable financial plan, but you, you have to then ask yourself the question and say, where am I going to get the $4 million of, uh, excuse me, where am I going to get an 18% rate of return? Well, now you wipe out, I'm not going to get it in index funds. I'm not going to get it in conservative, um, uh, in conservative, uh, um, you know, mutual, mutual funds. So now I need to either be very, very good at biotech stock investing. And I would need to ask myself specifically, do I have these skills? Could I develop these skills? I need to put a lot of time into it or I need to move into business and I need to say, how could I take my hundred thousand dollars that I have of capital and how could I develop some sort of business that I would be able to sell at the end of 15 years that would be worth $4 million and business people do this all the time. Uh, and it might be something as simple as, you know, buying a franchise locally. It might be a good idea that you've developed, but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility to say, I'm going to accumulate $4 million over the next 15 years. I intend to do that, but I'm not going to do it with publicly traded stocks. So that's why I was just doing some rough numbers to get an idea of do we need 6% or 18% rate of return. Is that helpful? Mm-hmm. Yep. Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me on the call today. I've enjoyed chatting with you all, and uh, I will be doing these again through the month of November. Uh, I intend to change one or two of the times to try to do an evening call to help some other people join in, but I've enjoyed these. Uh, and I thank you all for calling in. So if you have any questions in the meantime, join us on the next call. Otherwise, feel free to email me uh, and I'll see you back on the show. Thank you all for coming today. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.